0: Hello, I'm Gary Myers. I'm the uh, executive pastor of discipleship here at First Baptist, and uh, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Justin Langford uh, from Louisiana Christian University as our guest today. Chad really wanted to be here to introduce him. They've known each other uh, since since they were uh, in ninth grade, I believe. And so he sent a message. A uh, personal greeting for me to read uh, this morning since uh, they're homesick today, so keep them in your prayers. So, this is from Chad. Justin and I attended high school, college, and seminary together and served at Edgewater Baptist Church together for four years. Justin has always been an exemplar student and now a beloved and deeply respected professor at Louisiana Christian University, formerly known as Louisiana College where he and I graduated. As a church, we give 10% to the cooperative program in our local association of churches. Part of what we give helps operate LCU. Consider this, four four out of five high school students who are attending church at the time of high school graduation, walk away from the church during their college years. Part of our strategy as Louisiana Baptists is to have a Christian university where students can attend, in which every major is taught from a Christian worldview, where spiritual formation is a priority and future leaders are prepared not only for vocational ministry, but to be nurses, teachers, journalists, doctors, lawyers, business owners, and more. Every November, we will host a guest representing our Baptist work together here in Louisiana. So this year, join me in welcoming Justin Langford, Chair of the Department of Christian Ministries and Missions at Louisiana Christian University.
1: Good morning. Thank you so much, Gary, for that introduction. And, you know, I think this could be said for Chad as well, but I often think where he and I would be specifically if we had never met and I know, that you, I know that you know this, but I'm going to say it in case you don't. Maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you're a new member. Just how wonderful and how respected of a brother he is. Um, he is an amazing man of God. And I tell you, I, this is in all seriousness. I really don't know where I would be today in ministry, in academics, just in my spiritual walk without the encouragement and the, the prodding from Chad. And I think he would say the same thing for me and many others as well. So I'm so grateful to him. Thank you, Gary, for the introduction. I'm so grateful to Chad. I know he's probably watching from home. We're praying for you and your family, Uh, but thank you so much for letting me uh, come and to be here with you today. And and just to be able to worship. And I also wanna recognize I do have a good bit of my family here this morning. They're from Baton Rouge and Covington, so not too far from here. So it's good to be with you today. Uh, It's good to worship. So. In the 1980s, there was a guy named Rich Hall, and he came out with this concept called Sniglets. It it eventually was turned into a book. Here's how he defined the word Sniglet. It's a word that doesn't exist or doesn't show up in the dictionary, but should. Because he combined a number of concepts together that just describe reality for us. So I have a few examples for you. Maybe this will connect with you. Here's the first one. The word is snackmosphere, snackmosphere. It's the pocket of air found inside the snack or chip, uh, potato chip bags, right? The worst thing ever, right? Thank you. we have already getting some amens and claps. That's awesome. All right, the next one is chwads. It's C-H-W-A-D-S, chwads, the discarded gum found beneath tables and countertops. Yep, don't look under the pews. There may be some under there too. Flopcorn, flopcorn are the unpopped kernels left in a bag of microwave popcorn. Also, not fun to experience, especially when you bite down on them, right? All right, this one's great. Ice lanch. Ice lanch. When the ice at the bottom of an upturned glass turns suddenly and moves toward the mouth as you attempt to finish drinking the liquid. Ice lanch. Then there's snorfing. All right, Snorfing is the game that waiters and waitresses love to play by asking you if there's anything else they can get you while your mouth is full. Snorfing. Now this one, you know, in our digital, you know, social media age, I don't know how many of you still get newspapers, but uh, this one is the news wafer. A news wafer is the newspaper that's left on the driveway that's been wet and run over for a period of time. News wafer. Usually you have to scrape them up off the, the pavement. And then finally and lastly here is nap jerk. Nap jerk is a sudden convulsion of the body just before falling asleep. And I must say... You know, I I see this all the time in the classroom. I know there's a lot of seminary and and college professors around here. I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. But I imagine you'd never do that when Chad's preaching, right? You'd never experience the nap jerk. I hope not, at least. Well, look, all of these made-up words, these sniglets, as he calls them, they work because they do define reality for us. And today I want us to consider Jesus' birth, the incarnation, from a place that we don't always associate with the incarnation and that's Revelation 12 and so you can go ahead and turn there but I think this would be a great example of a Sniglet this is a bad example I'm not as creative but the only thing I could think of on short notice here was maybe the Sniglet for thinking about Revelation the book of Revelation and Jesus's birth would be reverend you know Revelation incarnation I don't know I'll leave that up to more creative people But that's why I want us to consider this today, because I think this text offers for us a perspective on Jesus' birth that maybe you're not aware of. And I think it's a very important perspective to consider. So we're all familiar with the accounts of Jesus' birth from Matthew and from Luke, and rightly so, but there is another nativity story, as some have called it, the third nativity, and that's found here in Revelation 12. So before we get into the text, I should start by reminding you you probably heard me say Revelation, and you're thinking, oh, no, what's about to happen here today? But Revelation is full of symbolism. It's full of a lot of weird images and creatures. And our task for today, what I would desire for us, is not just to understand what this text is, but to allow you to see that even a book like Revelation shouldn't be so intimidating to us. There are, there are passages and things that we can understand. So there is going to be some symbolism. There's going to be some creatures and some things, so just be ready for that. It's going to get kind of weird. But I think it's an important text for us to consider. So let's start by jumping in, and we're going to read verses 1-6. through John says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head's. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. So, uh, here's the larger picture in Revelation. We're at the point of the book where the scene for a good while has been heaven. If you go all the way back to Revelation 4, the section after uh, the words from Christ to the seven churches, the scene shifts to heaven. And the veil is kind of uh, opened for us so that we can see what's transpiring. And back in chapter 4, there was this amazing worship scene before God and his throne. And then in chapter 5, we're introduced to the Lamb who was also like a lion and this represents Jesus our Messiah and he is the only one who's worthy to open the scrolls and the scroll and the seals and and so what's happened from Revelation 4 to Revelation 11 is there's been this amazing worship scene in heaven. Things have happened, some crazy things from time to time, but all the seals have been broken and open and all the trumpets have sounded and this is where chapter 12 enters in. So the story shifts just a little bit. And what drives the story here in Revelation 12 is the appearance of these two signs, the woman and the dragon. So I want us to consider very briefly who these people, these individuals might be. First, we're introduced to the woman. Notice how she's described. She's clothed with the sun, the moon, and the stars. She's pregnant, and she's about to give birth, and she's in pain. And she gives birth to a male child. But notice what's said about this child. We know that he's important. Because the dragon is seeking to devour him, to consume him as soon as she gives birth. And finally, there's this statement I think really helps us find out what's going on here. And that's the child is said to be one who will rule or shepherd over all the nations with an iron scepter. And that's in verse five. So here's what's going on. That statement from verse five, that this child will rule the nations with an iron scepter comes straight from Psalm two, verse nine. It's a statement that was understood up until the time of the Messiah as referring to God's chosen king and here later being understood as a reference to the Messiah. So who might this woman be? Now look, for the sake of all the stuff that's out there, a lot of the options really come down to it's God's people or maybe it's even Mary. But here's the great thing about this. We don't need to know in particular who this woman is because we know who the child is. And I would say this, you can actually look a little bit later in Revelation, chapter 19, so a few chapters down the road, verse 15. This same phrase is used to describe Jesus at his return, that he will rule or shepherd the nations with an iron scepter. And so Jesus himself is this child who's being described. He's about to be born, and there's this dragon. So this is describing the nativity. This is describing the incarnation, Jesus' birth. Well, if we consider who this person might be, now we have to understand as best we can, who is this dragon? And that's verse three, this enormous red dragon. He's described as having seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on his heads. And look, in short, probably just symbolizing the authority and the power that this dragon is. Well, who is he? We don't find out right here, but look with me in the next part. This is verses seven through nine. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So somewhere behind the scenes here, there's this cosmic battle that has ensued as a result of the dragon's failure to take out this child. I want you to think with me for a minute about a couple of Christmas carols, uh, Christmas songs. And um, this might not describe the whole setting of all the Christmas carols, but at least these are two that we can consider. So the first one is Silent Night. And here's what I want you to think about with me. How do our our, our typical Christmas carols describe the earthly scene in and around Jesus' birth? They're kind of at the manger. And so here are a few lyrics from the song Silent Night silent night holy night all is calm all is bright and then a little bit later sleep in heavenly peace and then heavenly hosts sing hallelujah what does this song tell us and communicate about the scene of jesus's birth here on earth well silent night holy night all is calm that it's quiet it's quiet it's calm there's a heavenly peace about it jesus is sleeping and that even in, you've got the soundtrack of the angels in the background singing quietly, right? That's usually we can look at the nativity scene and say, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, we, we, we think about Silent Night. What about Away in a Manger? Some of the lyrics to that one is, Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord, Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. And then the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. The, the description of the scene is, is similar. It's very humble, it's very quiet, it's serene. Jesus is sleeping, but even when he's awoken by the animals, he doesn't cry. That's kind of a miracle in and of itself, right? And so you consider that and a lot of these lyrics in and around these, these Christmas carols around this time of season. And that's the, the picture we get. And I'm not saying that's inaccurate. That's important to reflect on. It's true, but it's true in part. And I want us to think about what's happening in the background. What's happening... On this cosmic level, if we could pull the veil and the curtain back, what was taking place? And that's where Revelation 12 fits in. And so um, one, one picture that should come to our minds when we think about Jesus' birth, it doesn't always, if y'all want to go ahead and put that up there, um, is this. This is an 18th century portrait of this chapter in Revelation. And if you can make it out, you can see what what must be Mary holding Jesus, getting her away from the dragon. You see all the heads of the dragon and the angels fighting and that kind of thing. This is not what we think about when we think about Jesus' birth. We don't think about crazy beasts and dragons and a war taking place in heaven. But Revelation is trying to show us something important here. We get the identification of this beast in verse 9. The ancient serpent calling back to Genesis called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. The devil's standard operating procedure has always been to destroy, to uproot, to accuse, to deceive. The very name, the very word Satan means adversary or accuser. And so this description of him in this text should not come as a surprise to us. But don't miss the result of the conflict. He loses he loses the war and he's cast out. Now, what I want us to do is we're going to skip over verses 10 through 12 for just a moment. We're going to jump to verse 13. We're going to come back, but I want you to jump to 13. Follow with me. This is 13 to 17, the, the last part of the chapter. When the dragon saw the Debian hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman, and notice what happens. He went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus so with the birth of the Messiah and this war in heaven Satan is now relegated to the earth and he finds himself once again on the losing end after not taking successfully the child out he's pursuing the woman and can no longer be successful in that venture notice then where his attention turns verse 17 he goes off to make war against the rest of her offspring and the text is great because he he does define for us who those folks are. It's us, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan's master plan since Jesus' birth has been to destroy what God is building. And look, you, you don't have to go any further from Revelation. You can go back to the chapters two and three when he's talking to the seven churches who are struggling to live in faithfulness. And a number of connections are made. He talks about the synagogue of Satan, that Satan's th- he knows where Satan's throne is and that where Satan lives. And that it's the devil who has put them in prison and caused their suffering and their persecution. And look, as gloomy as this sounds, we're gonna get in a minute to how they would have understood this, but as gloomy as this sounds, There is a word of hope, a voice that shouts loudly into the middle of this situation. So glance with me back at verse 10. It's in those verses we skipped over a moment ago. 10 through 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. This loud heavenly voice speaks into this dire situation a word of hope. Here is why the birth of this child is significant and why Satan is bent on destroying him. And why Jesus' birth for them and for us is the turning point in human history. Verse 10 establishes these four things. That in Jesus are the salvation of God, the power of God, the kingdom of God, and the authority of God as his Messiah. God has taken on flesh and stepped into human history. Hope. Embodied has entered the world. And I would argue that not only are these three verses kind of the central focus of Revelation 12, but honestly the focus and the central message of the whole book of Revelation. Notice that the victory, how it takes place there in verse 11. They overcame him, and two things are mentioned, by the blood of the lamb, the lamb who we're introduced to in chapter 4, the Messiah here. Uh, the child he's born in chapter 12, but also the word of their testimony, their faithful word and witness that confirms Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, has entered into the world. Now, let's consider for a moment how this original audience would have understood these words. Because we read this and we're like, yeah, this is still kind of weird. You know, even though I know who the, who the child might be and who the dragon is, what does all this have to do? I mean, how would they have understood this? Imagine with me for just a minute that you are these people living back in John's day, that you're living in towns and cities across the Roman empire, and that the government has ramped up its persecution of you precisely because of your faith in Christ. Imagine meeting for worship in a home or maybe a building with a small group of people and not knowing if your worship meeting will be interrupted by the authorities. Imagine that like John the apostle, you've been imprisoned on an island because of your faith, or worse, you've been sentenced to death. Just imagine for a moment the fear, the uncertainty, the distress, and all of those things that would significantly impact your thoughts and decisions every day. John, the author of this book, this vision, would say to you, among other things, remember Jesus' birth. Remember that God is active behind the scenes, even when we don't see him or his activity. Remember that God has worked and is working to destroy evil. And remember that our mission as his people on this earth is to make him known regardless of the difficult circumstances we face. And through this act of remembering, have hope. So something happened to me recently that's never happened to me before in my life. And a few months ago, I was invited to an eight-year-old's birthday party. Now that might not sound like anything significant. My kids were invited as well, my girls. But... This girl, her name's Katie, we've been friends with her family for a number of years, we go to church together in central Louisiana. Katie came up to me one Sunday and specifically invited me, a 40-year-old man, (laughs) to an 8-year-old's birthday party. But she explained it in this way. Oh, and look, it was also really weird because that just happened to be the weekend that my wife and kids were out of town, so I'm driving up to this girl's birthday party. I mean, I know the family, but my kids aren't even with me. I felt so weird, so awkward. But here's why Katie invited me. So uh, less than a year ago, she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. You may know what's involved there. It's a a lot of of upkeep and uh, there's a lot of things that could happen, especially at her age as an 8-year-old. But over 26 years ago, I was also diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a teenager. And through Katie's experience with this disorder, in my prior experience, we, we connected... on a a level that's that's much different than people our our ages, our drastic ages. And um, I've I've had numerous opportunities through the course of my life uh, and my struggle with diabetes to be able to encourage others who are going through the same thing, particularly people who are younger than me. But what I remember about this birthday party is the reason why she wanted to invite me and a number of others in our church who have diabetes, type one diabetes, is we're, we're at the party and you know, the kids are doing their thing, and, and she did presents and cake and all that kind of stuff. And I was about to leave, and her mom says, no, all, y'all, all the diabetics, y'all come over here. And, of course, there were sugar-free options for all of us and water and that kind of thing. But she said, y'all come over here. Katie wants to get a, wants to get a picture. And, um, and it was really cool because there were people of, I mean, there was guys and girls, and, you know, she's all the 8-year-olds and 40-plus-year-olds and everybody in between. And she wanted to invite us to her party as a form of encouragement almost as a, as a way to bring about hope in our lives. And, and it really spoke powerfully to me because Katie at her young age, I think recognizes the importance of community and especially how important community is when we are going through the sim, a similar circumstance. We've seen this with COVID, maybe with other things you know, in, in our lifetime and, and Katrina, you know, especially here in this city. Community is important, but it's not just important whenever we're suffering, although it is. And so I thought about Katie when I was thinking about this text. She realizes, and I think we need to realize as well, that community is a gift that brings hope and it brings encouragement to our struggles. And I want us to think about this as we begin wrapping up. I want to put something in perspective for you. When we think about a a chapter like Revelation 12, and maybe even a book like Revelation, as weird and crazy as it is, oftentimes we can remain distant from the story of the text and, and not think that it applies to us. But look, again, this text is about the incarnation. It's about the significance of Jesus, our Messiah, and his birth. And so my first just reminder to you, it's not really a point, is that the story of Revelation 12, like every other portion of Scripture, it's our story as well. I think oftentimes we read it and we're so maybe confused or discouraged and we don't understand that we think that these things don't apply and that couldn't be further from the truth. We, as 21st century believers, I and mean, we prayed earlier for, for those in other parts of the world and for our city, your city here. We need to be thinking about how this impacts us on a daily level and how it reminds us of the mission that God has called us to. The story of Revelation 12 is a story of the battle between good and evil, between God and all these forces that are so often opposed to him, and especially in our culture today. It's the story of victory over evil and our victory as well. And it's grounded in what CS Lewis refers to the incarnation as the grand or central miracle of all of Christianity. And here's how he illustrates it. He says it's it's like a strong man and there's a heavy burden in front of him. And he says this it, this man stoops lower and lower to get up under the weight of the heavy burden. And then at one point he almost disappears behind the burden as he's lifting it. But he stands and he lifts and he places it on his shoulders and carries it off. And Lewis says, God descended, became flesh in order to reascend, not just to reascend for his own purposes, but to bring us with him. And I think when we're reminded of a story like this, we should think of that and think about the incarnation as one of the greatest miracles of Scripture. In short, the incarnation, God becoming man in Christ has in fact changed everything. And I hope you believe that today. We've sung about it. And so I just wanna wrap up with three very quick points that we can take away and apply to our lives. This text refers to our victory. While we do see that Satan, as this enormous red dragon, as one who deceives and accuses and is violent, the truth is he is fighting a losing battle. He's lost his campaign to take out the Messiah. He failed in taking out the woman. And now he's bent on destroying God's people. And look, I should also include this here. His presence and his activity are very real. I know a lot of times in our Western world, we don't think about, you know, uh, those kind of concepts, the reality of these spiritual forces. He is real and he is strong. But God is stronger. Victory only comes through Jesus, the Messiah, the embodiment. Of hope secondly this story is a story of hope it's our hope as has already been mentioned this is the first Sunday of Advent and that is the focus of this Sunday we reflect on the hope of Jesus' coming there were many in Israel in Jesus' day you can read about this in Luke 2 who were eagerly anticipating the arrival of the Messiah and I think hope defined as an eager expectation of God's activity in our world, in and through us, and what he's already done in Jesus, our Messiah, should be on the forefront of our minds. And then in verse 10, you know, on this, the proclamation of hope, this loud voice reminded of God's salvation, his power and his kingdom and the authority that comes only through Jesus' son. This is how we begin to live out the mission that God has called us to. And how we respond, not only to what's around us now, but also difficulty as they were encountering. And thirdly, then, our mission. The mission of God gives purpose to our struggles and to our pain. And this mission is to be lived out in community. So what should our response be to suffering and struggle? Look at verse 17. It's this simple. We are those who obey God's commands and we hold to the testimony of Jesus. We continue to live in faithfulness because I think oftentimes when trouble and suffering come our way, we place those blinders on and we, do, we fail to see not only the world around us, but the needs around us that God has called us to meet and the people he's called us to reach. The book of Revelation, and as I would say especially chapter 12, is a call to remove those blinders, to remember that there are, there's a hurting world, world around us. There's a Katie out there There's a Justin out there. There's someone out there who's struggling with something that you're encountering or maybe you're struggling for your faith. We need each other and we need the community of God's people. And so when we struggle and when we suffer, it doesn't give us license to push pause on obedience. Instead, like the text encourages us here and many other places throughout scripture, we should continue to walk in faithfulness and in obedience. And it's the world around us that sees that response and it communicates to them. So my encouragement to you as we finish is as we reflect on the, nativ- the, the Christmas season, as we see nativities all around, maybe in our churches and in our homes, and honestly, not just during the Christmas season, all throughout the year, remember that as we sing songs about the peace and the hope and the joy that come through Jesus, there is something going on, that God was working behind the scenes of the heavenly realm. This cosmic conflict was being waged and he has achieved victory on our behalf through Jesus. So we think about the significance of Jesus, our Messiah, the radical enduring hope that comes through that in our mission here on this earth. And you know, look, maybe one tangible way, we're always looking for tangible things to think about and how to apply things. One tangible way that maybe you could remember this, and look, I know this is you know, not maybe the best way to do it, but if it helps you remember, maybe it'll work. You can go ahead and flash that picture up on the screen. Find a little red dragon. And put it up on your nativity somewhere. I mean, someone's going to ask you why that's there, and you could tell them. And look, I've already done, I'm a professor, so I've already done the research. Ready for this? I went on Amazon. That's where you go first when you, when you research something, right? And you can find either a red dragon plushie or action figure for anywhere from $10 to $25. So, and maybe if you research other sites, you can find other things as well. Um, so look, we started with, or we kind of in the middle, began with some Christmas carols, Here's one that maybe reflects our text a little bit better. It's the first stanza of Joy to the World. It says, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. May we as Christ's followers live with the same exuberant joy and hope, not only because our Messiah has come, but because we know he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it has to speak into our lives today. God, that you've preserved it in written form so that we could study it and learn from it. And that you, through your spirit, give us the ability to understand it. But God, we don't have to look far and maybe we don't have to look past our own hearts to know that evil is very present in this world. God, we call on you because we need you and we need the power of your spirit to stand firm. God, we are thankful. God, we are so thankful that you sent Jesus, you became flesh for us so that we could have that relationship with you. But God, remind us today, it doesn't stop there. God, as we think about Christmas and as we go beyond the Christmas season, at its very core, it reminds us of our mission as your people Jesus came to deliver us and bring salvation, not just so that we would be with him one day, we could demonstrate who you are to the world around us now. So God, remind us of our mission today. And God, in the middle of suffering and trials and temptation, we would lean and call on you because you are the only source for our strength and our hope and our joy and our satisfaction. And I pray, God, that as we continue to live in faithfulness for you, and that we do so out of joy, that the world around us would see, even before we have to we say something to them about you, that your spirit will be working and moving. And it will communicate there's something different about us as your people. God, we thank you for your victory. We thank you that you've destroyed evil. But God, in these moments that we live on this earth, Maybe be encouraged by the hope of your return because we know that you came and you've shown us who you are through your son. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. And we thank you that we can approach you in prayer because you have torn that veil. We love you and we look forward to what you're going to do in and through us as your people throughout this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close with a song, I want to remind you that there will be pastors available for you if you need to pray or talk. I want to encourage you to worship with us in song.